hello world. Did anyone else's history teacher seem a little too obsessed with Genghis Khan? It is your favorite historian, Mary Jane, and welcome back to her story. For anyone who has been a reoccurring listener, you know my long-standing struggles with baristas. This month alone, my coffee cups have dubbed me Maddie, Marg, May, and most interestingly, Larry? <laughs> I don't know what to tell you about this point. Have I given up? No. Well, maybe a little bit, but that's okay, because today we are talking about the Queens of the Steps. As you all know, February 1st was the start of the Lunar New Year, and I would hate to close out this month without touching on some badass woman from Asian history. Lunar New Year, also called Chinese New Year, is celebrated across East and Southeast Asia. But for today, we are focusing on some of Mongolia's most influential female leaders. Daughters of archery and horseback, these noble warriors rose up to command nations and lead armies in the name of the Great Mongol Empire, dating back to Genghis Khan in the 13th century. His royal dynasty lasted until Soviet occupation in the early 20th century and gives us four incredible women to learn from today. From stateswomen to martyrs to wrestling in the name of horses, this is a deep dive into the Mongolian queens and the societal freedoms and restrictions that birthed leaders of one of the greatest empires ever known. Let's start with the man, the myth, the legend, the ancestor of 16 million people today, who was such a prolific murderer that he lowered the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and caused a global drop in temperatures. Genghis Khan was only nine years old when he would meet his first and most beloved wife, Borte. Borte was born around 1161 in the Okun tribe of the Khanagard region of Mongolia steppes. This was actually the same tribe as Genghis's mother. Side note, most of the world pronounces Genghis as Chinggis, but his birth name was actually Temujin. Borte was only around 10 years old when she and her future husband were betrothed. Her tribe had a reputation for beautiful women, and Borte was no exception, though it is said she was incredibly intelligent. Her parents, Dai Sochan and Chotan, arranged for their daughter to marry Temujin, who was the son of Yasugi, another tribal leader. The two clans were friendly, and the union would reinforce their alliance. Temujin stayed with Borte's family until learning that his father had been poisoned by rivals, and the future Khan was forced to return home to his mother and siblings. As with most records of women, Borte does not reappear in history until around seven years later, when Genghis returns to marry her, around 1178. Borte's father was delighted and gave his blessing for Temujin to take Borte to live with him, saying it was finally time they'd be united as man and wife. He also gave his own wife permission to live with their daughter and his stepson in Temujin's family yurt along the river. I'm not sure if that was a custom, but it seems very nice. But her most impressively was her dowry, listed as a fine black sable jacket. Things are tough on the steps. From an early age, Temujin had to provide for his mother and six siblings, even killing his older half-brother to become head of the family. When Temujin's father had been poisoned, the family was abandoned by their clan, and Temujin was even enslaved for a period of time. So yeah, this is a family with a lot of enemies. This gets especially dangerous for the women of the steppes. Wife-stealing was common. Temujin's own mother had been kidnapped and forced into marriage. Borte herself was kidnapped by the enemy market tribe only a few short months into the marriage. 
This was retaliation for the abduction of Temujin's mother, who was supposed to marry a market man before she was kidnapped. According to record, Porte stayed behind because there were no horses left to carry her, and as the family fled, she was given over as a spoil to one of the soldiers, acting as his wife. Temujin was heartbroken and formed strong alliances with other tribal leaders to launch his own retaliatory attack. He made alliance with one of the most powerful leaders, who was an old friend of his father's, giving him the black sable jacket Borte used as dowry. Temujin managed to rescue Borte after around eight months of captivity, slaughtering the markets and gaining a reputation as a great unifier and murderer. Not long after, Borte gave birth to a son, Jochi. Though his paternity remains in question due to the assault she faced in captivity, Temujin regarded the boy as his own. With the steppes unified through alliance and conquest, Temujin be became the great Khan and set his sights on stabilizing his kingdom and expanding borders through brutal conquest. Borte remained at his side as one of his most trusted advisors, a small circle which also included Genghis's mother, Holon. And her skill in diplomacy and negotiation would make her key to stabilizing the nation while Genghis was off committing war crimes. Once, Genghis's little brother went into their tent in the middle of the night asking for military help against a rival tribe. Potentially during mid-sleeping and or mid-sex, Borte pulled a blanket over herself, sat up, and began listing the cruelty of this enemy tribe. Upon hearing her speak, Genghis agreed to attack. Under their rule, stealing animals and kidnapping and enslaving women became illegal, and, for the stealing animals at least, punishable by death. Diplomats gained immunity, and there was an increase in literacy and total freedom of religion. Nice. Borte and Genghis had four sons and perhaps five daughters, and Borte held the title of Katun, a feminine version of Khan, and was head of the royal court as Grand Empress. She ruled her own territory by the Kurlan River and was beloved by the Mongol people. Only her sons were considered as Genghis's successors. Due to the uncertainty of Joji's true father, Borte's second son, Chigatai, was chosen as Khan and Joji became leader of the Golden Horde. Borte is believed to have died around 1230 at age 68 or 69. Her kidnapping is seen as a turning point in Genghis's path, but more importantly, her loyalty and skillful diplomacy allowed the Mongol Empire to flourish when she was its regent. The legacy of the empress continues to be revered today. Now, much of what we know about Borte comes from the secret history of the Mongols, a historical record following the death of Genghis Khan that listed his life and conquests. Though much remains unknown about the lives of the couple, the secret history remains the most critical and potentially the earliest Mongol literary works. Part of the secret history outlines the expansion of the Mongol Empire into territories like Persia, Korea, Europe, Russia, and Tibet, and most notably China. The legacy of Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, started out with his ruling of northern China and battling the Song Dynasty to the south before challenging and defeating his brother, Arokbork, taking the throne and becoming the next Khan. After conquering the Song, Kublai renamed his empire the Yuan Dynasty and made sure to incorporate Chinese traditions and advisors into his rule. None of this would have been possible without his second wife, Chabi. Chabi was born in 1225 and was from the Konigar tribe. Her father, Anchen, was actually the brother of Borte. <sighs> I know, more incest. Every time I think we're past it, guys, every time. In 1239, she married Kublai, 
as his second wife, but by far his most beloved. She became the first Mongol empress of China and took her role in advising and exchanging cultures incredibly seriously. It was her beauty, virtue, and diplomacy that would earn her the comparison and reputation of Borte. Within a year of their marriage, Chabi had already borne one of four sons, but records of her slip into darkness between 1240 and 1260, when Kublai becomes Khan. With her husband ruling in northern China at the time, of the actual Khan, Monkey Khan, dying, it was Chabi who urged Kublai to make peace with the Song and return home swiftly. Her warning allowed her husband to return and defeat his brother in conquest and inherit the throne. Chabi had great aspirations to expand the power and solidify the empire, acting as one of Kublai's fiercest advisors and an advocate for their conquered Chinese subjects. Chabi ensured the better treatment for the northern Chinese imperial family who was conquered, especially their Empress Quan, in 1276. When the two met, Chabi took her hand and defended the Empress, ensuring that the conquered queen was treated with respect and cared for the rest of her life. She spoke out at council meetings and even stopped the development of Chinese peasant lands into horse pastures outside the capital and berated Kublai's advisors for being too afraid to tell the Khan that it was a bad idea within the agricultural economy. A devout Buddhist, Chabi's faith was another bridge between the Mongols and the Chinese. She was most interested in Tibetan Buddhism and would donate her jewelry to support many temples, even mediating religious disagreements between Kublai and his Buddhist advisor. Chabi named her first son a Tibetan name, Dorji, and fostered conversation and exploration of Buddhism at court, even for Kublai. She acted as a patron for many political and religious leaders across the empire, and her historical studies allowed for comparison spoonade between Kublai and the beloved Tang Dynasty rulers to incorporate the culture and history of the Chinese into this new expanding empire. Chabi was also a great innovator, especially when it came to fashion. She was known for being extremely frugal and really threw things out, perhaps a nod to her own nomadic roots. At court, she and her ladies collected bowstrings and wove them together to make cloth, and would even collect animal pellets for rugs. When Kublai related concerns about the bright sun in the eyes of his soldiers, Chabi designed a visor to protect their eyes, which was quickly incorporated into the entire army. She also designed sleeveless garments for soldiers to wear in combat, especially as they moved to hotter, more arid climates. Chabi's trendsetting and intellect would push the cultural development for both Mongols and Chinese. Chabi died on March 20, 1281 at age 56. Her loss was so devastating that Kublai would lose all energy and eventually eat and drink himself to death. Kublai would rule for 30 years, and within another 30 the Chinese would begin rebelling, but without Chabi, it is unknown how much of their culture would have been lost to conquest. Most of the Khans had four wives and four separate households, and yet Chabi is the most recorded and beloved, and definitely the most influential, with only her children rising to prominence. Chabi's legacy was most notably and recently brought to life in American media with Netflix's Marco Polo show. Our next heroine also made an appearance in that colorful and historically ambiguous series. Princess Kutalun also has gained a lot of popularity recently. Her own story was recently rediscovered. But who wouldn't want to learn about a warrior wrestler princess? Born in 1260, Kutalun was the great-great-granddaughter of Genghis Khan, and her father Kaidu and Kublai would be at war with each other for decades over the fate of the empire. 
Kaidu and his followers follow, favored traditional nomadic life, not the bureaucratic Chinese-influenced government of Kublai's court. For more context, Kublai Khan and Chabi were Kutalan's great aunt and uncle. Some say Kublai and Kaidu were cousins, and I don't know what to tell you guys. Searching for historical accuracy is like trying to do a backflip blindfolded while baking a cake. It is exhausting. Despite Kaidu's 14 sons, there was only one warrior and potential successor he relied on above all else. Yes, Princess Kutalun. Like most Mongol women of the steppes, Kutalun was educated in combat, from archery to horsemanship, and her battlefield terror would make her the pride of the Mongol horde. She would also take it a step further. She did many things reserved for males, including drinking blood, milking cows, and violently retorting anyone who had the misfortune of insulting her. As recorded by Marco Polo, Kutalun would split off from the line of warriors in the middle of battle to murder a single enemy across the field and drag the corpse back to her father's side like a hunting falcon to strike fear in the hearts of every man around them. And I'm guessing it worked. She was a revered strategic military advisor on every campaign, especially as her father would tighten his hold on Western Mongolia and China, as the Yuan dynasty ruled by Kublai and Chabi flourished. What Kutalun is most well-known for, though, is her wrestling. A muscular, towering woman who is renowned for her beauty and strength, this would be the most defining aspect of her legacy. Wrestling was a big Mongol pastime. It was entertainment, sports betting, and had virtually no rules except throwing someone to the floor. Prowess in wrestling could be a signal that you were divinely gifted, and no one was more gifted than Kutalun. In her entire life, she never lost a match, and she wrestled men of all ages and sizes. According to local historians like Marco Polo and Rashid al-Din, Kutalun would only agree to marry the man who defeated her in a wrestling match. Anyone could compete, so long as he paid the entry fee of 100 horses to add to her clan's herd. In her lifetime, she won 10,000 horses. As she continued rocking men's shit, her parents got worried that she would never marry. When a super cocky guy bargained 1,000 horses for the chance to beat her, Kutalun's parents begged her to throw the match, because apparently this dude was like super legit. Needless to say, she went and took his 1,000 horses. However, vicious rumors starting to circle around why Kutalun was waiting so long to marry, including a particularly disturbing one that claimed she was sleeping with her dad. No. So she eventually settled down with an unknown man to protect her family's reputation. Some say she married a former prisoner or an aide to her father. Others claim she and the Mongol ruler at Gazin fell in love and married. When Kaidu was on his deathbed, he tried to instate Kutalun as the next Khan, but was swiftly rejected by her 14 brothers. Supposedly, the only way she agreed to back down from the position of Khan was to be made leader of the military forces. She died not long after in 1306 at age 46 to unknown causes. Suggestions include battlefield murder or at the hands of hitmen from Kublai or her own brothers. Oddly enough, her legacy didn't resurface until 1710 at the hands of French author Francois Petit de la Croix, whose story loosely based on her life, Turnadot, follows a Turkish princess who asks riddles to her suitors and kills the ones who fail to answer. 
This was later made into an Italian opera by Guillermo Puccini. Gutelin's story has regained its autonomy. Her name is still twisted by the West, but has returned to historical forefront of Mongolia's national sport, wrestling. Some say that in defiance to Kutalun, Mongolia's wrestlers wear open-chested outfits that show they are not, in fact, a woman. Don't know how to read that, but I'm just glad her name and story are returning to prominence. Now you're probably wondering, Mary Jane, light of my life, wonderful historian that you are, what is with the Star Wars teaser you put in the title of today's episode? Thanks for sticking around, babes. You know I wouldn't let you down. For those of you who have seen Star Wars shows or films, you might be familiar with the iconic outfits of Padme Amidala, a senator and former queen. What you may not know is about the real woman who those looks are based on. So, let us set the stage for the last empress of Mongolia, Queen's consort Genepil. The Soviet Union had usurped Mongolian independence, and they had a heavy hand in controlling the political affairs of the nation. This is about early 20th century, by the way. It's a relief that Russian forces have stopped trying to undermine the independence of other recognized states, <clears throat> Ukraine. But Mongolia's ruling king, Bogdan, was crushed after the death of his favorite wife, Ekaterina, In a desperate attempt to hold up the tradition and roles in an already floundering court, Bogat Khan's advisors begged him to take a new wife. The guardians of the Mongol court searched among young women ages 18 to 20, and they found their next queen in Genepil, a noble girl of 19 who was already married with children. Genepil was actually the name she took as queen. She was born Tessinyapil, a girl in the northern Mongolian steppes, and the name Genepil wouldn't be given to her until her second marriage. Social customs, along with the desperate state of the monarchy, disregarded these seemingly important hang-ups of her married-with-children thing. Born in 1905, not much is known about Genepil's life, even throughout her marriage to the Khan. In fact, she only agreed to the forced marriage because she was assured that the ailing and nearly blind 53-year-old Khan would soon pass away. They took Genepil in the night. And her daughter recalled that the next morning, she'd found her mother had left a sugar cube as a sweet on her pillow. Jennifer was to move in with her new husband, but her hesitancy ran deep. Under Mongol law, when Jennifer requested to be returned to her parents' home, the Khan had no choice but to allow it. She was only reunited with her husband and children for a short period before the courtiers came again, begging her to take up the mantle as queen and maintain the waning strength and traditions of the nation. Again, she agreed. Genepil and Bogdan were married in 1923, and she remained his wife and empress until his death on April 17, 1924. With the last Khan dead, the monarchy was abolished and the communist regime of Mongolia's People's Republic was born. Genepil finally returned to her family, but her short tenure as queen would haunt her for the rest of her life. Communist radicals were trying to wipe away all traces of the former Mongol Empire, and the nation's last queen was a living reminder of the history and potential resurgence of the Khanate. Some call it the Great Repression, but from 1937 to 39, this was a period marked by 18 months of heightened political violence spurred by Stalinist repression in Mongolia's People's Republic, which is part of, a, of the larger Stalinist purges that rocked the Soviet Union. Those perceived as a threat to the Mongolian Revolution were systematically arrested, tortured, and executed. 
Mock trials and hard labor in Soviet gulags was also frequent. At an individual and organizational level, those supporting Mongolian nationalism, Tibetan Buddhism, and pro-Japanese sentiment were targeted, especially Buddhist monks, aristocrats, intellectuals, and there was even the genocide of the Burat and, and Kazakas peoples. An estimated 20 to 35,000 people were murdered. That is 5% of the country's population. Knowing this, it is no wonder that Genepo was targeted. In 1937, Genepo was accused of having tried to stage a rebellion with the assistance of the Japanese, and she and her family were arrested. In 1938, Genepo and her father were shot. At the time of her execution, she was only 32 or 33 years old. She was also five months pregnant. Jennifer's legacy is mostly alive in the image of Padme Amidala's infamous headdress and robes in the Star Wars franchise. The ram-like gold headdress is drawn from the Kalaka people of Mongolia, which today makes up about 86% of the population, while her white geisha-like makeup and Korean hanbok sleeves Along with the auspicious color red is a nod to many Asian countries, the franchise has confirmed that her costume is drawing on Mongolian court fashion. These iconic looks are directly drawn from the surviving photographs of Queen Genepil. But it has raised a question of appreciation versus appropriation. Many say the lack of inclusion of Mongolian culture in the white character, as well as George Lucas's multiple references to her being, and I quote, exotic, have overshadowed the importance of drawing from multiple cultures in the creative process and disrespected Genepil's legacy. Genepil's own descendants, however, have been reportedly thrilled to see Genepil's influence on the films. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. The Mongolian government sent an official complaint to Kevin Feige of the Marvel Cinematic Universe when a banner of the fictional Middle Eastern terrorist group, the Ten Rings, included Mongolian script in the Iron Man films. The banner was changed to include Chinese characters in the film Shang-Chi. Mongolia's Minister of Culture, Sports, and Tourism, however, expressed regret for the issued complaint and that others were heartbroken at its change. But why? Because since 2013, China has been cracking down on ethnic minorities and their cultures, as seen in Hong Kong, Tibet, Uyghur Muslims, and even Inner Mongolia, and representation is power. Mongolia has a long history of powerful female rulers, politicians, and warriors. In most cases, women in Mongolian society enjoyed more freedom than most other global societies, even at the time. Some of the most influential monarchs, governors, and generals of the Mongols are women. If you're still curious about other stories, I have to recommend you look into Genghis Khan's daughters. For a brief snippet, he used his daughters as diplomatic shields which is still using, but, you know. He would marry his daughters off to cons or kings and then go to war and claim their territory and make his daughter head of that new territory. The book, The Secret History of the Mongol Queens, outlines the importance of his daughters in securing control of the Silk Road to Persia and how they fought alongside male warriors in conquest. This isn't to say there was perfect harmony among Genghis Khan's many descendants. And when I say many, I mean many. For example, Genghis's son, Ogadai, murdered most of his female relatives and organized a mass assault of thousands of Orak girls to secure his power. My only comfort, besides knowing that he's getting his butt whooped in the afterlife, 
is that the name and contribution of his sisters, aunts, and many other women have overshadowed his own. Between Borte, Chabi, Kutulun, Jenipil, and the thousands of other women who built the Mongol Empire, there are still records coming out today and being uncovered of how they governed and conquered within the legacy of the largest empire in the history of the world. All right, my loves, we are closing out today. It has been an absolute joy, and I can't wait to return next week for another woman who made her story. Thank you.